And now we're going to continue on and actually close out the sermon series we've been doing the past several weeks called People of the Gospel. We've been looking at the letter of Philippians in the New Testament, a letter that the Apostle Paul in the Bible wrote to a church at Philippi. And this church had heard that Paul was in trouble. So Paul writes this letter from prison where he was suffering tremendously on account of his faith in Jesus and testimony about Jesus. The Philippians heard about his situation. They sent him a generous gift, financial support and encouragement. And so he writes in return to them, both to to thank them, but also to encourage them because he's heard that the Philippian church is actually suffering quite a bit themselves, quite a bit of opposition and marginalization in their culture, uh, suffering in in various ways. So Paul writes to encourage them along in their faith to kind of continue in the face of struggle. The first week, I introduced a sort of thesis statement that you could say for the book of Philippians. It's found in chapter 1, verse, seven, verse 27, where Paul says to them, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's really at the heart of it. Whatever's going on, all the tumult and change and, and suffering that they're experiencing, whatever happens, continue to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. And throughout the letter, he's filled out some of what that looks like to conduct ourselves this way. It looks like continuing to grow in love, continuing to grow in discernment and insight. It looks like being selfless and and sacrificial, looking to the needs of others above our own. It looks like remaining united and valuing relationships with one another and not letting divisions or conflict uh, take hold of the community. It looks like not grumbling or complaining but having a heart that rejoices in God. And then last week we saw uh, a life in the gospel is one that is lived for Jesus. Len talked about gospel purpose last week, that we're not to live primarily for ourselves and not even to live primarily for the sake of others and, and their approval, but to live for Jesus Christ alone, where true life and, and satisfaction is found. And then last week our passage ended with a, a really lofty thing that Paul said. He said we're... Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ will one day will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. There's a really lofty and glorious picture of what it'll look like one day to be fully transformed by the power of Jesus. But today we're going to get back down to the nitty-gritty of life in Philippi, and Paul's going to share a few final thoughts on what it'll look like to be transformed by Jesus in the here and now in their current circumstances, what it'll look like to continue to be changed by him and to be gospel people. So we're going to call this one gospel fruit, as Paul is going to lay out a bunch more ways that, that the gospel and the new life that Jesus brings is evidence and ought to be evidence in the life of a community that bears his name. So we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 4, the final chapter of this letter. If you've got a Bible, you can open there in the pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 832 on most of them. I'll read through all of it, if you'll read along with me, and then we'll work through it a little bit. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So there's, there's a lot in here to unpack. It's sort of like Paul is getting out every last thing that he would really like to say to this community while he's still got the chance. So we're going to narrow it down and highlight five things for today, five marks of a gospel community. There are more. This is not an exhaustive list, but out of Philippians 4, there's kind of five marks I think we see in here that Paul points out that ought to, that ought to be marks of a people that bear Jesus' name more and more. So we'll work through them as we work through the passage. The, the first one is reconciliation. Reconciliation, that, that relationships where there's conflict be reconciled and, and that we be a people of peacemaking. So he starts by addressing two particular women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, pleading with them to work out their differences. Whatever the conflict was, we don't really know what the conflict was. He's urging them to work it out and to reconcile and for the community to come around them in that. Now, there's a few things I think we can learn about reconciliation just from this little passage. It's only a couple of sentences, but there's a lot in here that Paul highlights for us about what reconciliation in a Christian community ought to look like. So the first is that reconciliation is not just a nice idea, but it's a practice. It's not just something to value or to think is cool or to wish you know, people would get along. It's actually a call to get along and to work at that. Sometimes that takes some real intentionality, some real effort, and some real work. It's, it's a practice, not just a nice idea. So he urges these two women in particular to be of the same mind. And that actually is the same phrase he used earlier in chapter 2 when he was calling the whole church to, to agree with one another and to remain united. He urged them to be of the same mind. But now he's telling these two people in particular, be of the same mind. So the, the call went out generally to everybody, but now he's saying, well, actually, this command, it's got your name on it. 
So it's not enough to just kind of nod, oh yeah, we should, we should be of the same mind. Actually, you, with names, real people, real relationships, be of the same mind. So it goes beyond just a general call or a general thing to agree with or, or like, but something to actually practice. That's actually true of any real command or exhortation that God gives in Scripture. It's not something to just sort of nod at or say, oh, I think that's a good idea. People ought to do that. But it's, all these commands have our names on them. They're meant to be put into practice. They actually, the rubber meets the road in real relationships, in real time, in real situations. And where there's a conflict here, Paul addresses it. And this is where these commands get put into practice. So the second thing we see Paul do related to this is that he addresses conflict head on. Peacemaking, you know, some of us think peacemaking is, is just avoiding conflict altogether. We're, we're conflict avoiders. We think, well, if we never bring anything up or if we never rock the boat, then there'll be peace. But that's not really what, what reconciliation looks like. For there to really be resolution of conflict and real peace made, we have to actually address conflicts that exist. And Paul does it pretty boldly here. He actually he calls out these women by name. And this was a letter written to a whole community. It was meant to be read aloud publicly. And he calls them out by name in that way. It's something he never really does. Uh, so it's bold. Now, we don't, again, know what the conflict was, but these two women seem like pretty prominent people in the church. So it's possible that their conflict was affecting the whole church. And so it's addressed in front of the whole church so that there can be a holistic process of, of restoration and reconciliation. But Paul doesn't back down from calling it out. And, and calling things like it is, and naming the conflict. Again, uh, conflict avoidance can buy a certain kind of peace for a little bit of time, but it's not real peacemaking. It's not real reconciliation. Where there's conflict, it's made right by actually addressing it head on. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he not only calls it out and addresses it, but, but he really honors the people involved. This is important. This is very important. He honors the people involved. The whole section starts with this verse 1 where in one sentence Paul finds six different ways to say how much he loves these people. You're my brothers and sisters, you who I love, you who I long for, you're my joy, my crown, and my dear friends. Before he launches into any of this, any of this hard truth-telling, it's established that he loves these people. It comes out of a place of deep affection, deep concern for their good and for their well-being. And any time we have to say something hard to somebody else. Anytime you've got to challenge somebody else, it, it really ought to be known on their part that it comes from a place of real love and real affection and a real concern for their well-being. So he does that. And then he honors these women. He calls them their, his true co-workers in the gospel, people whose names are written in the book of life. He really holds them up. He, he shows a lot of respect for them. He's not talking down at them or belittling them. He, he shows a lot of respect for them and who they are and what they've done and what they've been through with him. He honors the people involved. That's so important as he calls them out and addresses their conflict. I think it's really important in this day and age where uh, some of us are tempted to avoid conflict altogether, but then there's also this element in our culture where people call each other out in a way that is really toxic. And really demeaning, especially now in an online environment where you don't have to, you ever see anybody face to face. There's a lot of calling out of wrong that happens that actually really belittles people and dishonors the people involved. Goes beyond saying, I disagree or you're wrong about this, but not only are you wrong, but you are a terrible person. You're ignorant, you're backwards, you're deplorable, you should never be allowed to speak again or to have a job or anything. I mean, we, we really cut people down a lot, uh, again, especially in an online environment calling out conflict in a toxic way that actually demeans and belittles people. 
That's not at all what Paul does here. He calls things out while honoring people and expressing affection for them at the same time. I took a seminary class a little while back on reconciliation, actually, and it was a class I took during the fall of 2016, which you may remember was a fairly contentious time in our country, and it got to be a tense time in the classroom at times as well. And we were practicing reconciliation, practicing good conflict resolution, and, and talking through difficult things. And my professor, Dr. Emmett Price, he, he is a, a, a man I really respect, and, and a man who's not afraid to call things out, not afraid to tell it like it is, not afraid to challenge us, not afraid to name evil and, and injustice and sin, both personally and corporately, really not afraid to call any of that stuff out and to have hard conversations with us. But he had this one rule he shared that really stuck with me. And he said, whenever I'm engaged in conversations like this, I always make sure I leave the other person's dignity intact. I always make it a point, no matter how heated it gets, how strongly I feel about something, how passionately I disagree or think someone might be in the wrong, I always leave the other person's dignity intact. And he did that in our class, and it really stuck with me. And I think, what a breath of fresh air that would be that the church can blow into our cultural dialogue these days. To be able to disagree, to be able to to address things that are wrong, but to do it in a way that doesn't demean people, belittle people, or tear them down, but really honors them and leaves their dignity intact. I think it's sorely needed, and I think it's something that the church is really called to, like Paul is calling this church to here, address conflict, but to leave people's dignity intact and to really honor them in the process. And then fourthly, the thing that Paul highlights here is that in conflict, we also need to be able to give and receive help. He asked some unnamed person here who we assume knows Paul was talking to them to help these women to work out their differences, help them in the midst of this conflict. You know, when you're entrenched in a good fight, when you're in conflict with someone, it can be really hard, just the two of you, to, to get out of it and to really hear each other and understand each other and move forward. Sometimes we need some help to get out of conflict. When things build up, when, when things get entrenched over time, we need the help of one another, someone to sit down with us who loves us both, who has affection for us both, who can help us to talk to each other, to help us to listen to each other, help us to see hope and a way forward. We need help and not be shy about giving it or receiving it. If you see tension, if you see conflict that people are stuck in or struggling with, you know, try to do it in a, as sensitive a way you can, but don't be afraid to offer some help for their well-being, for the sake of their relationship. And if you're struggling and if you're stuck in a conflict, there is no shame in asking for some help. And there's absolutely no need in a church to pretend like we all got all these perfect relationships where it's a great and we all love each other and get along so perfectly. There's no need to pretend that we've all got these perfect little Christian families and, and, and marriages and relationships with our kids where there's never any conflict where we get stuck in. We need help. None of us have conflict-free lives. And so there is absolutely no shame in seeking out some help, a little mediation, just someone, could you help us to work through this? And we need to be willing to give it when, when asked. If you're entrenched in a conflict now, don't wait till it becomes so toxic that, it, that it's totally irreconcilable or it's a total crisis point. You know, reach out to me, reach out to one of the pastors, reach out to your friend across, across the pew here. We've got trained people and untrained people who are just walking through life together, who have worked through this stuff. Write it down on the back of your card if you want. But 
there's no shame in asking for help in resolving conflict. In fact, it's something we're called to do, to give and receive help, and not just be left alone to try to work things through. So, it's a lot of time on reconciliation, but this is a really important one, and one that we really are going to continue to need to live out as a church, and especially in our day and age. We're to be a people of reconciliation. That is a mark of a gospel people. Second mark that Paul highlights here of a people being changed by Jesus is that we be a people who, who rejoice. Rejoicing ought to be a mark of the people of God. He says it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. This is the only place where Paul repeats himself immediately like this, as if to say, no, no, really, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to tell you again. Rejoice. I'm serious about this. He's really underlining how important this is. It may have been tempting for this community to think, oh, yeah, rejoice, that sounds nice, but things are really hard for us right now. Maybe we can rejoice later. But Paul is saying, no, I'm talking to you now. Actually, rejoice in the Lord always. I know things are hard, but circumstances don't dictate whether the Christian is is rejoicing or not. We're to rejoice in the Lord always, not just when we feel like it, not just when things go our way, and not just when it's easy, but always. And that's not an easy thing to do. But this phrase, in the Lord, is actually a really important thing here. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. We're not necessarily to rejoice in difficult things, in things that are wrong or in things that are hard, but to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of things. So rejoicing in the Lord always, it doesn't mean that we say that evil things are good. It doesn't mean that we pretend that hard things are easy. It just means that in the midst of hard things and in the midst of evil, we rejoice in a good God who is there and who remains good in the midst of it. Always rejoice in the Lord. I really learned about this firsthand when I was a young Christian. I was a college student, and the first church that I was ever a part of, actually, I would hop on the, on the tee in Boston and go to a church in Dorchester in a particularly challenged neighborhood where the families and people involved um, faced a lot of challenges as a community uh, in a kind of urban setting. And man, I've never been a part of a church where the rejoicing was so exuberant. Week in and week out. It didn't matter what kind of week it was. And people were carrying in some heavy, heavy things, personally and as families and as a whole community. But man, the rejoicing was consistently raucous. And it was awesome. And they weren't rejoicing that things were hard. They weren't rejoicing in the family brokenness they were experiencing. They weren't rejoicing in the community injustice that they were experiencing. They were rejoicing in God who was there every week in their midst. And that was a powerful lesson for me about what rejoicing for for a Christian really is. Rejoicing always, not in the horrible things, but in the God who is present in the horrible things. So we don't have to rejoice that there is pain and suffering in the world, but we rejoice in the God who is close to the brokenhearted. We don't have to rejoice that there is wickedness and injustice and cruelty in the world, but we rejoice in a God who sees it and will call oppressors to account and will one day rule with perfect justice and perfect peace. We don't have to rejoice that there is death and loss and grief, but we rejoice in a God who rose from the dead and who promises a life after this one for those who believe in him. We rejoice in the Lord always. So again, it's not just positive thinking like, saying hard things are easy or, or pretending good things are, bad things are good, but we rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. And we're told that he is near. He is near 
in every circumstance. And so we can turn to him, and we're called to turn to him. It's the antidote to anxiety. So, so one of the great enemies of rejoicing is anxiety. And, and as an anxiety-prone person, I know that anxiety and rejoicing really don't coexist very well. And so Paul highlights the, the contrast here. After he says rejoice, don't be anxious about anything, but instead turn to God in everything, in every situation, he says. In every situation. What if our first response was to turn to God? I mean, it just sounds so simple, but I'm amazed at how difficult it is to put into practice when, when we're anxious, when we're troubled by something, to turn to other things first, to turn to Google, to turn to whatever, distractions, to turn to people, and not to just turn to God first and, just, and to let our requests be made known. So simple, but yet so difficult. We all have our other places that we run besides God when, when we're anxious, when things are difficult. It's a simple call here, though. In every situation, by prayer, petition, thanksgiving, just present your requests to God. It's an amazing thing what that does for anxiety. That, and, and when I do turn to God, finally, I realize, oh, well, if I had just done this earlier, I wouldn't have been anxious for so long. And Paul calls the people to do that here. And then there's a promise, a third marker of a gospel community, and that is a peace, a supernatural peace that transcends all understanding. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As we press into God, as we rejoice in every circumstance, that there's a peace that becomes ours that doesn't necessarily make sense on paper. That there could be circumstances in our lives where it doesn't necessarily make sense that we would be at peace in that setting, but, but actually it is something that God provides, that his people can experience peace in a, like whatever is going on. It's a supernatural thing. It transcends understanding. It doesn't necessarily add up, but it's a gift from God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That is actually a marker of his people. And peace in the New Testament means a whole range of things, uh, but in this particular setting, it is kind of a, an inner quality, a quality of life where no matter what is going on, the tumult, the anxiety, the suffering we might be experiencing, that somehow our souls are at peace and at rest, assured that God is real, that God is here, and that God has a, a way forward. And that brings us a peace that maybe transcends understanding and transcends the circumstances. And that promise is there again in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Kind of go hand in hand. Where there's God, there's peace. And the peace that he offers us is a peace that comes straight from God. It'll, be, it'll guard our hearts, guard our minds. It will be with us. We're to rejoice in all circumstances and to look to God in all circumstances. There's a few other things Paul asked them to do here. Uh, it has to do with their thought life and their actions. So there's some rhetoric here. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, and so on. These eight things. This, 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 this. Think about these things. So he's teaching us how to direct our thoughts. Actually, our thought life matters. What we focus on matters and is really helpful in being people who rejoice and experience peace. What we think about really matters. And this is actually pretty broad. Uh, anyone in his Greek culture would have agreed with any of this. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, these were a, like kind of widely extolled virtues, not distinctly Christian things. And so 
Paul's actually fairly generous here in what he calls us to, to think about. Like, just whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, think about these things. It doesn't have to necessarily be in only distinctively Christian forms or settings that we find beauty, that we find lovely things that we can affirm, that we can honor, that we can celebrate. We don't have to just consume Christian-specific art, for example, uh, in order to find something beautiful that we can celebrate and that we can affirm, that we can enjoy, and that we can actually allow to, to lift our spirits. Whatever. It's, it's fairly generous, I think, in terms of what we, can, what we can affirm and what we can celebrate and what we can find beauty in. But then, there's the next word. Whatever you have learned from me, whatever you have received from me, heard from me, seen in me, put it into practice. So it's not just our thought life and what we focus on, but actually what we do that also matters here. And when Paul's talking about what they've seen, heard from him, this is very distinctively all about Jesus. So, we can be, you know, we can find beauty and goodness in a lot of places, but at the end of the day, in terms of the choices we make and the things we do and to put into practice, the example Paul has given them is one that's totally sold out to Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. That life is fully devoted to him and given over to him and found in him. So there is something very distinctively Jesus-centered that Paul is calling them to here. And again, though, the promise, as we as we rejoice, as we turn to God, as we focus our thoughts in good places, and as we really live a life devoted to Jesus, that the peace of God and the God of peace will be there, will be with us, no matter what the circumstances. Even if others might think peace does not make sense right now, they might look at you and say, why are you so peaceful right now? What is it about you that's not as troubled by this situation as I am? Why are you hopeful? Why do you seem somehow okay? And we can point them to the God of peace who is with us in every circumstance. Well, there's, there's two more markers now of a gospel people that I want to get to. I'm going to talk about them at the same time because Paul, Paul does this. So the final two here are contentment and generosity. Contentment and generosity are also things that ought to mark a people who call themselves by Jesus' name. And Paul kind of talks about them side by side in verses 10 through 20 as he thanks them for their, their gift to him. And, and it makes for a really funny thank you, I think. Because Paul kind of goes back and forth between saying, wow, thanks so much for the gift you sent me, but I, I really didn't need it. So I, mean, I don't know if you can imagine if I wrote a thank you note, so like, you know, like, dear Rashida, thank you so much for the kind gift you gave me. Even though I didn't really ask for it. But I appreciate it, and it was great that you gave it to me. Although I was fine before, and, but, but it was really good that you gave it, and, 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 and wonderful. I, I so appreciate it, although I would have been okay either way, right? <laughs> but thanks. Uh, you're welcome, I guess. But he's highlighting both of these things kind of side by side. He really wants to celebrate the contentment that he's found in Jesus and to highlight that for this church, and also to celebrate their generosity to him. Both of these things are wonderful, and he wants to celebrate them. So in terms of contentment, uh, in the heart of this passage, we find one of the more well-known verses in Scripture where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me specifically. I can do all things. This is a, a widely quoted Scripture and really so often taken way out of context. 
So often, Philippians 4.13 is quoted in a way that's really triumphant, triumphalistic, kind of like, I can do anything, I can accomplish anything, I can, I can achieve any goal or any success because I've got Christ and he's going to strengthen me for it. Uh, it's often quoted in an athletic context as well. I remember uh, the old heavyweight champion of the world, Evander Holyfield, used to have Philippians 4.13 on his boxing trunks. And it was as if to say, I can kick anyone's butt through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> and I don't really think that's what Paul is getting at here. In fact, it's not that way at all. It's actually not a promise of success or triumph or, or, or hitting our goals. It's actually a promise that whether we do or not, that we are content. So in an athletic context, this would probably be best applied by saying, you know, win or lose, I'll be content in Jesus. Whether I'm the superstar who gets all the glory or whether I sit on the bench or I'm injured, I'm going to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether, whether I hit my goals or whether I fail completely, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord and experience his peace. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's, not, he's saying, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's what contentment is. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul has learned the secret of contentment. And he didn't learn this in a book. He's not talking about academic learning, or, but he's talking about the old kind of learning that can only really take place in our lives by living years in which God continuously shows up and is faithful, whether things are good or whether things are terrible. And Paul experienced plenty of both of these things, some really triumphant things in ministry where he led great movements of Jesus, where he saw people healed, saw people delivered, where he preached with power and, and was a strong leader. But right now, he's, he's in prison, and none of his gifts are being put to use. I mean, can you imagine? You have all this passion, all this talent and gifting you know you have, and, and, and you're just sitting there. But Paul's content either way. Paul has found community and, and wonderful brothers and sisters all over the Mediterranean world. But now, again, he's in prison. He's alone, and yet he's content. Paul's known plenty, and Paul's known want, and he's learned the secret to be content in, every, in any situation. And on paper right now, when he's writing this letter, Paul's life stinks. And it doesn't make sense that he would be content. It doesn't make sense that he would be at peace, and it doesn't make sense that he would rejoice, but he is doing all of that here. He is content because it's not about his circumstances. It's about Jesus who's present with him no matter what. And that's what contentment really looks like. So he wants the Philippians to know that he is, he is totally content in this situation, but he does want to celebrate their generosity. Make no mistake about it. It's great that they sent him support. It's great that they sent him a gift, but not so much because he needed it really badly, but because they needed it really badly. Giving is so good for them. He highlights that. This, things are credited to your account. God is so pleased with what you've offered. This is great for you that you're a generous people because, again, it's a marker that God is really at work in the life of this community, that they're generous. 
They're putting into practice all the stuff Paul's been talking about. They're seeking others' interests above their own, even though they're going through their own stuff. They're being generous. They're being sacrificial. They're somehow content and joyful enough that they're not so anxious and focused about their own needs and own problems. They're looking out for others. They're overflowing. They know they've got something to give, even as their lives are hard. So generosity, man, it's beautiful. It it shows that God is really at work in their community, and Paul wants to celebrate that because generosity is a marker of a gospel people. And it's a marker of a mature Christian. It's a marker of a mature believer. And we, we talk about generosity actually quite a bit here, not just because there's great needs, though, out there in the world, in our city. There are. That's part of why generosity is so important. There are real needs. But actually, there's also a need for us in our own spirits and our own hearts to be generous people because there really is no such thing as a mature follower of Jesus who's not also a generous follower of Jesus. And so we've got to keep celebrating and highlighting generosity, not only because of the needs there are, but because that's what it means to follow Jesus and to be made in his image. So, reconciliation, rejoicing, supernatural peace, contentment, generosity. This is a lot, I admit. Probably each of them could be its own sermon. And and in the, the week preparing, I did wonder, is this too much? like too much stuff to throw at you, should narrow it down. But a couple things. One, Paul didn't seem to think it was too much to throw at the Philippians. In fact, this was a letter that was to be read all at once in one sitting, not just this chapter, but the three that came before it. He didn't think it was too much for them to hear. And so I don't think it's too much for this church to hear. And also, I think the thing that the Lord impressed upon my heart this week was that actually he wants all of this for us. Not just some, all of it all these markers. And he doesn't want us to be selective. And he doesn't want just a few of them for us. He does not want his followers to be, have an inner peace, a quality of inner contentment in our lives, but to have broken relationships that aren't reconciled. He doesn't want us to be generous people who are looking out for the needs of others, but who have no joy in our lives. He wants it all for us. And I think he wants you to know that. He wants every bit of this for you. And these are all things that we can continue to grow in as we're on a journey, as we like to say. None of us fully get any of these things, and our lives as we move forward will be filled with continual opportunities to practice reconciliation, to practice rejoicing, to experience peace, to learn contentment, and to overflow with generosity. There'll be continually opportunities to grow in all of these ways, and God wants it all for you. He wants, you, he wants all of these to be markers and qualities of your life, but also of this community's life, every, every bit of them. So wherever you feel like one or more of these things might be lacking in your life right now, I want to just, before I pray for us, give you a moment to pray in the quiet of your heart to make your requests known to God. Is there a relationship where you need to see reconciliation? Is there a situation in which you are struggling deeply to rejoice or to experience peace? Is there a way that you, you need contentment where you are gnawing with discontent? Or is there a way that he may be calling you to be more generous? Wherever you feel a lack, make your requests known to God right now because you know what? He's near.
Father, thank you for this time to sit under your word, to sit at your feet. And just like Paul took uh, these really big, lofty things he was saying and, and applied them directly into the lives of two very dear people that he cared about, I pray that you would take all that we've been hearing, all that you've been saying to us through today and through this whole series, would you take it and direct it into our lives? Show us where these these words have our names written on them, where you're speaking to us now, both personally but also as a community and as a church. Cause us to grow in all the fruits, all the markers of what it means to be your people, that we truly could shine like stars in this generation and in the world that we're living in, the city that we're living in. Would you make us a gospel people in every sense of the word so that the gospel and all of its power and all of its fullness could really be made known to more and more people and that we would be continually transformed into your image until we're fully transformed one day into your glorious image. In Jesus' name, amen.